Hello, story seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. Our guest for this episode is an author of epic, dark, industrial, and Scottish fantasy. She's the author of the Vessel of Caledine series, the novel Petra MacDonald and the Queen of the Fae, and the BFA shortlisted novel The Flame and the Flood. She was also the editor of the BFS Horizons for four years, and is now the chair of the British Fantasy Society. We would like to warmly welcome Shona Kinsella. Hello! Hi, thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. That is uh, that is quite a list of accomplishments. <laughs> I never think it's very much till people list it out like that. Really? You just you just yeah. walk around not really thinking about it much? I think I'd be thinking about that a bit too much, actually. I think that would go to my head. I can confirm he would. <laughs> <laughs> Become a sort of despot inside the fantasy scene. <laughs> What's it like being chair of the British Fantasy Society? What does that mean for you? Oh, it's it's a lot of work. Um, so we're all volunteers yeah. uh, who run the British Fantasy Society. So we're doing everything in our spare time round about jobs and families and things. But you know, it's such an honour, and I just, I just love this community so much that it's really, it's lovely to be able to serve it this way. Yeah. Um, and to be able to make sure that there's a a welcoming space for all the new people that are coming through and joining um, the SFF community in the UK. So right. I just, I love it. <laughs> that sounds very noble. I, I, I really like the sound of that. That sounds like you do an excellent uh, service for the community. Um, what's, what is the scene like? What's the uh, British fantasy scene like? Um, is, it, is it largely welcoming? or? Um, my experience is very much that it's very welcoming. Um, so I started writing fantasy in 2015 and I joined BFS in 2016 and attended my first convention in 2017 so it was all quite quick together and I didn't know anyone and I went to my first um, fantasy con which is the convention run by the British Fantasy Society and of course, yeah. um, after <laughs> at the end of the first day I remember sitting in the bar at night time at the disco and watching people dance and there were other people sitting talking about books and other people talking about Star Wars and I just I thought I'm home. Oh <laughs> yeah, I found my tribe. <laughs> Bloody brilliant. And then uh, obviously I assume uh, COVID knocked you guys out of action for a bit in terms of uh, being able to run that convention. Yeah uh, so there was no convention in 2020 obviously. Um, we had a smaller convention in 2021. Uh, we run usually in September or October, so we, um, by September 21, people were just starting to get back to doing things. Yeah. Uh, so we had a very careful convention with smaller numbers than usual. Um, and then this year was a bit more back to normal. Um, and, do you, and it feels like it sprung back? Yes. Yeah, Brilliant. I think very so. Very glad to hear that. We very nearly uh, uh, went this year. Uh, we uh, we sort of um, unfortunately a few other things came up and we just didn't quite get ourselves sorted in time. Uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid I but, was uh, a, a muso, wasn't I? Yes. Oh, sorry, uh, gang. <laughs> um, but we're intending to come next year, so hopefully we'll we'll see you there. Excellent! It will be a really good convention um, next year. The team that are running it for us are 
very experienced corn runners and they always put on a great weekend so it will be fantastic fantastic and this it's not just open to uh, writers is it like it's open to anyone in, involved in the british fantasy society yeah anyone who wants to come along it's open to um, readers you know bloggers publish <laughs> publishers come along we have agents attend um, so it's basically anyone who's kind of in the community who likes talking mm -hmm. about books and games and movies, you know, wherever you find your fantasy or sci-fi or horror. Um, Put it this way, gang. If you're listening to this, <laughs> it's probably you. <laughs> oh, br brilliant. Yeah, they're definitely going to be going next year, I think. All right. Speaking of listening to this, let's let's do the business we're here for. It's story business time. time. <laughs> it's story time, Ben. Oh yeah, that one. Sorry. <laughs> so, our regular listeners will know how it goes by now. But for the rest of you, there'll be three stories told, and all of them have been written to the same shared prompt. This week, the prompt is twisted. Ben, you're up first. Spin me round. Twisted. They had never returned. Aria had waited until the days had turned into weeks, until the food was gone and her body began to weaken. But her sisters had not come back. The coven's cave, deep beneath the burnished mantle of the forest, was difficult to leave without drawing power for magic, and near impossible to find, even with its aid. Were she to attempt to draw power, then her body, recently seeded, would suck what small power there was in the child that grew within her, before it pulled from the power of the earth. Such a daughter would grow, and could be birthed, but it would never feed, or make even a single sound. It would return to the earth, still raw from her womb. Aria would not risk such a thing, even to help keep herself fed, and so she had to set off the steep tunnel to forage without the use of her magic. By custom, the other witches, in whom the seed had not quickened, would provide for those that would carry the children of the coven. They had failed. Aria, breathing heavily from the climb, twisted her hand gently within the rock wall of the coven's stone entrance. Old magic lay within the protective rock, formed as it was from the very bodies of her foremothers. They could no longer speak or think, but their last magic ensured their bones of stone would obey their descendants. The dead rock parted at her touch, and she wished that those women could speak words of encouragement to her, or reassure her that she was not alone. Ashamed, she pulled at her face to stop the muscles from bunching around her teary eyes and stepped out into the dense forest. It had been several months since she had felt the sun on her face. The dappled warmth of it forced a smile to her lips, despite the autumnal chill. Many of the leaves had already fallen, and they seemed to Aria to have woven themselves into rustling rugs the colour of rust. It felt strange to purposefully walk through woods she used to wander, her use of magic in the past had ensured that she could travel as she wished within the forest, but it was her first time carrying a daughter for the coven. Aria knew the groves of trees her ancestors had planted intimately, and had lived happily from how they had turned the wildness of the forest into seasonal gardens. She walked in the direction of the nearest one, there to find nuts, berries and mushrooms, enough to fill her foraging pack and save the life of her unborn daughter and her own. Oddly knotted low branches, trained by her kind, indicated that she had arrived. The place was peaceful, but Aria explored carefully nonetheless. 
she soon found what she had feared she might. Ro lay still in the heart of the wild garden. Her sister's foraging sack had fallen from her hands, and the fleshy golden mushrooms she had been gathering had spilt amongst the fallen leaves. She lay face down, and the back of her head had been opened violently. An axe or similar had split the skull, and her body bore the bruises and lacerations of a violent death. Aria folded to her knees and stroked the cold back flesh of her sister's corpse. The magic which had been worked into the hidden garden had kept scavengers from the body, but that left Aria to wonder at what could have done this. Witches could wield powerful magic, and it was unthinkable that someone might have been able to surprise one of her sisters in their own forest. The foul mages of the tower would have taken the body with them to display to their people were they to have murdered her. Yet, there she lay. The confusing and violent act left her mind empty, and filling that void was a wash of wordless sorrow. She sensed it before she saw it. It smelt of damp masonry and blood. Aria pulled carefully away from her fallen sister and pressed herself against the tree as the thing lumbered towards its kill. High branches bent and snapped to let its sloped shoulders pass, but the pale indigo of its flesh was left unmarked by the jagged revenge of the trees it damaged. The beast was enormous, yet Aria could sense that it was not any sort of animal. An abomination of man and magic, a cruel twisting of the flesh to create a predator. The mages of the tower had found a new and foul use for their destructive use of stolen power. The thing walked past her tree and stooped to snuffle at the head wound on her sister. Its own head bobbed and traced Rose's corpse down to where Aria had caressed it. From the side, she saw its face was a slope of jutting bone which bore two long and fluted nostrils above a sharply beaked, viscera-stained mouth. The beast audibly huffed at her scent, and Aria moved silently away from it. She moved from tree to tree, stepping lightly on exposed roots to avoid rustling the fallen leaves. Suddenly, huge thudding footfalls came towards her, and Aria broke into a run. She tried to control her breathing, but she could hear the thing gaining ground on her with its massive stride. Panic set fire to her brain as she pelted towards a tight knot of trees, like a hare being chased by a hound. She threw herself towards a small gap guarded by dog roses. Their red berry-like hips concealed many thorned arms, and when the beast tried to follow her, it smashed against the gap instead. She fell forwards as one of its freakish talon-tipped arms snatched for her. Aria landed on her elbows and knees and felt her flesh tear on the rough roots beneath her. The beast, she now saw, was thrashing to force its way through after her. Its terrifying strength caused the trees to groan and begin to part. The thorns of the dog rose had punctured it, but the beast seemed savagely heedless of how it bled more and more with every bucking thrust it took to inch through the gap. Its cawing scream revealed rows of teeth within its hooked beak mouth. Aria knew it would eventually reach her, knew too that with her might die the last of her coven. In an instant, she made the hardest choice of her life. Power welled up inside her, pulled from her daughter and the trees which guarded her. Aria snarled, stealing herself for the destruction she intended and channeled it into a magical blast which thundered through the pale flesh of the beast's torso. 
The skin which remained hung in ribbons around a hole her cast had cut through the monstrous thing. It tumbled nearly in two pieces, and the huge corpse sprawled into the disturbing quiet of the forest. Aria sensed the stillness in her womb, and screamed at the beast's corpse, screamed so loudly that she closed her eyes as the pain of loss soared through her vocal cords. In her heart, she felt the pain form into a hard truth. Aria would do whatever it took to stop the twisted mages and the damage they wrought on the world. She burned the beast's flesh and melted its bones before allowing what remained to rest amidst the death it had brought to the forest. Aria pulled power from the land to move herself between the gardens, finding dead sister after dead sister, until she had transported them all back to the rock wall of the coven's entrance. With whispers of loving magic, she gave them into the rock to rest with their foremothers. The final task she set herself before she could rest was the hardest. Aria knew the infusion she must brew and drink. They all did. Knowledge carefully passed down to guard against tragedy. It brought on cramps and sickness, though she had nothing in her stomach to vomit. Instead, the convulsions curled her up on the stone floor until the husk of her daughter left her body. Aria knew what she would do. She would find a sire again to seed her, and protect that seedling with all she could prepare and muster. Only then would her daughter be born again, full of life. She would call her Ro. Goodness me. Mm. That was very sad. Difficult decisions. Yeah, the, uh, the kind of magical gender binary setting. That's very, very cool. That's got a, a kind of a witchery vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Really nicely handled. Especially with the uh, this sort of the idea of this, the masculine side of magic was that was preying on these this next generation of witches sort of via the uh, the women bearing them. That's that's a really strong yeah. idea and image. Yes, it's uh, it's something that I've. Um... I've sort of uh, twisted around a little bit in um, uh, where this story comes from. This I, You may have recognised it a little bit, um, but this is actually a, a short story set in the world of the novel that I'm writing at the moment. Ah. Um, it's sort of like a bit like a prequel short story uh, to one of the characters. Yeah. Um, who uh, is the daughter that's yet to be born. Um, so I had a lot of fun exploring the, the setting and the concept uh, it really sort of made me feel like I knew that character a bit more to know where where she came from and who her mother was. Yeah. I really liked that suggestion at the end that the daughter would be the same daughter who came through even though she had died. Yes. So that like it was the same spirit coming through is lovely. That was um I think that was the bit where I really sort of found it um this this uh this belief that that's that some people are just, you know, that they know that they are going to give life and it's going to be the same life. Um, it may even be the case that, obviously, we, we're reacting to that in an emotional way. It may even be the case that something to do with the way that, like, a witch's biology works means that because that uh, means that that is the case, potentially, because um, it's all a bit magical. And we also get it implied from the story that they can only have daughters as well, which sort of means yeah. that they have this, like, um, unfortunate coefficiency required with the rest of the world. The uh, this idea 
of you know they they know their children will be witches and that the first power that would be drained from them to use magic is gonna be from that baby that's an absolutely terrifying way to limit their magic use like as it a, makes them, yeah as an imposition in in a writing method that's very very clever because it makes them very vulnerable yeah yeah it's it's like a, it's an unwinnable situation from the off and just because of their biology that's yeah very really nice also got to point it out because i love a good bit of alliteration rustling rugs the color of rust is <laughs> gorgeous it was almost it was almost too aggressive i think that one i i almost took it out but i left it in just for the fun of it potentially it's a, it might be time to to move on if you're ready shona okay twisted the tree stood proud on the brow of the hill its twisted roots digging down through the soil holding it fast against even the wind of the storm, which had been blowing for days. Its branches creaked and swayed, still reaching for the sky, though some of the younger, thinner ones had broken, ripped from the tree by the violence of the wind. Hephalia, the dryad who made this tree her home, mourned the loss, but knew that there would be new growth when the time came. The life of the tree was one of cycles, and so it had been for centuries. Freezing rain was driven against the wood, and Typhalia compensated by raising her own temperature and therefore that of the tree. It wouldn't do to abandon all of the small lives, cowering within the hollow spaces in the trunk and in burrows between the roots. A pulse through the mycelium network warned her that someone was coming. Who would be out and about during such a storm, she wondered. She pressed against the surface of the trunk, the wood and leaves shifting to shape her face. Winds and rain lashed her skin, and she almost decided that she didn't care who was coming towards her enough to stay out here in the cold. But then she saw the light bobbing through the relentless grey of the storm. A warm glow seemed to suffuse the air, and as it drew closer, Hyphalia saw that the person approaching was not subject to the storm, but walked in some kind of protected bubble where neither wind nor rain could touch her. It was as if she walked surrounded by a summer's morning. I was hoping to find you, the woman said, drawing even with Hyphalia's tree. I've been searching for a long time. Hyphalia was so shocked that she withdrew into the centre of the tree, her heart pounding. The woman who stood outside her tree in the midst of the worst winter storm in years could be none other than Artemis. What on the good green earth could the goddess want with her? Had she done something wrong? Offended Artemis somehow? But then Artemis would hardly need to come here to smite her. Gradually, she gathered herself and stepped out of the tree and into the goddess's light. Hello again. Artemis smiled and the light around them both brightened as if the sun had come out from behind the cloud. My lady, Hyphalia sank to her knees, head bowed. How may I be of service? Artemis placed a hand on her bowed head and Typhalia felt the power of a blessing wash through her. Places which had been stiff now relaxed. Niggles of pain disappeared. Her energy felt boundless. Rise, child, Artemis said, offering a hand and pulling Typhalia to her feet. It was only then that Typhalia looked at the goddess properly. She appeared young, little more than a youth. Despite that, her slender frame spoke of unexpected strength and dignity. 
wore a simple tunic and trousers, a quiver of arrows strapped to her thigh and a bow on her back. There was a blanket wrapped around her chest like a sling, and within it something made a gentle cooing sound. I come seeking your help, Hyphalia Dryad, the goddess said, her voice like music. I will do anything within my power for you, my lady, Hyphalia said, still unable to look Artemis in the eyes. Artemis looked behind Hyphalia and studied her tree. The Dryad couldn't help but turn and look too, tried to see it through the goddess's eyes. The trunk twisted and bent, at one point growing horizontally before reaching up again. Branches twisted against the sky. Growing in this exposed location had forced the tree to grow in unusual ways, but Thyphalia thought it was beautiful, a reminder of resilience and strength. Not everyone can see the beauty in the unusual, Artemis said, as if she had read Thyphalia's thoughts. Perhaps she had. But you do, and that is why I have sought you out. He reached into the blanket wrapped around her body and lifted out a baby, one whose legs had not formed normally, but instead were twisted and frail-looking. Artemis blew on the baby's face and she giggled. This child was abandoned in a forest a long way from here, left to die because of her legs. Another dryad found her and brought her to me in the hope I would heal the child. But not all that is different is meant to be healed. Hyphalia watched the baby. There was a glow about her, a vitality which spread beyond the edges of her being. There was nothing wrong with this child, no illness to cure. She was exactly as she was meant to be, just like Hyphalia's tree. She reached out and placed a fingertip over the baby's forehead and nose, making her laugh. This child deserves a place in the world, just like any other. She deserves to be loved and valued just as she is. Artemis stared at Hyphalia until the weight of her gaze forced the dryad to meet her eyes. Can you give her that? Hyphalia looked at her tree and then at the baby. This was not a hospitable place to raise a child. But then it wasn't hospitable for the tree either or the many small creatures which made their home there and all thrived nonetheless. Gently, she touched the trunk of the tree, pouring some love and growth into it. A few of the lower branches shifted, bending towards the ground and weaving around each other to form a crib. Of course, my lady, Hyphalia said, it would be an honour. Artemis passed the baby to Hyphalia and approached the crib. She waved a hand and suddenly the woven crib was lined with sweet-smelling moss and heather. At one end, a golden lily bloomed, and from its centre dripped ambrosia, the nectar of the gods. This will feed her until she is old enough for food, Artemis said, gesturing at the flower. When the babe was settled in the crib and had drunk the fill, Artemis asked, What will you name her? Hyphalia watched the baby for a moment and thought, I do not know, my lady. Perhaps she will tell me her name when the time is right. I will return to visit on occasion, but should you or the child need anything in the meantime, you need only speak my name over the lily and I shall attend. I wish you well, Hyphalia. With that, the goddess took her leave, fading from view before the dryad's eyes. The storm went with her, and for the first time in days, a saft of sun broke through the clouds.
Oh, what a lovely tale. There was uh, th that there was a bit very near the start where I, I thought you'd gone witches as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, with the um, Artemis, uh, that we then find out is Artemis, sorry, um, when she's walking and she's got that bubble of summer around her, that that gave me like strong uh, Granny Weatherwax vibes from um, yeah. from Discworld because she she has a way of walking where she can just she just sort of doesn't get wet despite she's walking <laughs> yeah. in the rain. Yeah, um, I, I, I was, I was yeah I was uh, so I was I was immediately in and then it was really cool to find out it was like a myth fantasy a uh, like a retelling almost. Um, I mean, I was is definitely going to be either plundering labyrinths or sailing grand ships or performing other heroics in. 15 years or so aren't they that would be that would be cool i thought it was going to be a satyr i thought it was going to be like the creation of satyrs or something um just because of the legs and stuff um but I, yeah i just really enjoyed being along for the ride with that one like it was it was nice to sort of um experience like um uh, a bit of sort of like realism uh, in terms of the writing approach to um describing interaction between a, a goddess and a dryad that was that was really cool there were um there were two phrases in there that they're, I say they're not really phrases. They're more like uh, ideologies. I wrote them both down. The first one was not everyone can see the beauty in the unusual. And then oh, yeah, that was good. different is meant to be healed. And both of those are absolutely phenomenal statements. <laughs> like regardless of the story, such nice ideals to build a tale around. Mm. That's, that's brilliant to invert the, See the the negative connotations of twisted with how this this child's been born differently able, and then to say, well, that's that's just how they are. It doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't make them bad. Like that, there is beauty in all things. That's yeah, lovely. <laughs> I liked the uh, the pragmatism at the end uh, of uh, installing the flower so that it could uh, be fed. Uh, there was there was something like. Um, really you know because often you can read uh fantasy stories or, or or myths and you're just like but how would that actually work how would that child survive in that scenario that kind of thing uh but in this you were like no i've got that this they're going to be drinking ambrosia <laughs> i like that i like that a lot but surely that baby's going to get bored of custard <laughs> just drinking tons of custard uh all of our yeah. American listeners are going to be so confused they're very confused yeah it's a, it's a type of crap custard <laughs> oh crap! How dare you? What is crap? What? Do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean? I mean that it's disgusting yellow slop. That's what I mean. <laughs> how is how is that a contentious statement? <laughs> it comes in a can. You feel this time? <laughs> comes out of the can and into my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, top notch! Well, thank you very much for um put you know for uh, for writing that and uh, performing it with us. That was that was a really special experience. And uh, the time has come for the third third story of this episode. The walrus said. The, the, the walrus said. To talk of other things. Right. You're uh, up, dear boy. Yeah, I suppose I am. Go on, then. Twisted. Jury member. The following is confidential and not to be shared with anyone outside of the court during or following proceedings. The following excerpts are taken from the 46th Precinct's evidence storage. In the case of the City of New York versus Michael Mickey Bianchi. Coroner's Report, August 4th, 2005. 
John Doe has been identified as Michael Bianchi. Jesus fucking Christ. Who could have done this to the guy? Right. Uh, uh, body is contorted in an unnatural manner. Lacerations to the skin separating heavily. Uh, they appear to be tears by nature as opposed to clean lacerations. My professional opinion is that this has been caused by strain to the upper epidermal layers during the fuck the, the twisting process. Jesus. Sal, can you come in here for a minute? The next nine minutes of audio do not pertain to this case and consist mostly of discussion between the coroner, identified as Lorenzo de Roma, and his assistant, one Salvatore Rigazzo. In brief, they discuss the damage sustained by the body, but not in any medical terms. Both men are quoted here as saying they have never witnessed damage of this type done to a human body. The full document can be requested from the evidence documentation pertaining to the case. This audio will continue from 11 minutes and 23 seconds. Right, better stick a shot of something in that coffee for me, kid. What was I? Right, uh, the head torso and limbs of the body are contorted into unnatural positions. Uh, rotation in the cervical spine seems to be close to 800 degrees. Fuck, this is awful. I am unable to successfully rotate the body into a natural formation due to the rigor mortis without destroying it completely. The hips have undergone similar rotation as have all ball joints in the body. I don't know what to tell you for when you're typing this up, Sarah, but the guy looks like a fucking corkscrew. Right. Uh, cause of death, trauma, severe trauma. Uh, I don't know what kind of machine you would use to do this to the guy, but let me tell you, it would have taken a dozen guys to do this. It was this prognosis that launched the case against the city of New York by the family members of Mr. Bianchi. Records from Precinct 46 show that the cause of death was listed only as trauma, and investigation into the home of Mr. Bianchi, where he was found, showed no sign of any disturbance. This is according to a recording taken from the 46th Precinct's internal security measures. We had to bust the door in. It was locked from the inside. Had a bunch of shit pushed up against it. Shit? Like what? Like a, like a dresser? I'm telling you, man, he done that crazy shit to himself. You see the smile on that fucking corpse? i never seen anything like it. Well, what are you saying, man? Like the dude turned himself into a fucking pretzel? I don't know what to tell you, dude. No one else could have got in there. The freak did that to him fucking self. The reports filed by the officer called to the scene, Officer Jake McConnelly, state that the apartment building was secure and that the lot owned by Mr. Bianchi was secured from the inside. The key was reportedly still in the lock. The report claims that the building was full of twisted-up shit. The officer is currently suspended with pay, pending the results of this investigation. The city is representing Officer McConnelly as part of its defence case. Officer McConnelly will be testifying as part of the defence's case due 17th June. The Bianchi family have refuted these claims, citing inaction by the 46th Precinct in the investigation of the alleged murder of Michael Bianchi. The following has just been admitted to evidence by the defence. 
a video cassette taken from a camera on the property belonging to Mr Bianchi. The images shown are extremely graphic. Any juror of a sensitive disposition would be advised to listen and review document number 00741, which contains a physical description of all events that take place in the video, along with a transcript. The video will open and close with unrelated audio. Please do not take this into consideration when reaching a verdict in this case. However, it is presented here for the first time in its complete form, with no omissions. Happy birthday to Ali! Happy birthday to you! Now blow out the candle, sweetie, make a wish! I wish for... No, 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 you don't tell us. That way it won't come true. Okay, Grandpa. Good girl. Now, cut Grandpa a slice of that... <coughs> Look at it. So perfect. The way it spins forever. Spin. 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 It is nature's purest shape. God, in his infinite wisdom, created something so divine. The way it twists so freely, I feel its majesty within me. I used to be jealous of a boy I knew. He was double-jointed, he called it. Such majesty in the way his limbs would twist across each other. If only he were here to join me. I cannot wait to meet God. He will understand me. No one else sees as clearly as I do. Even Father Tucci didn't understand what I have come to see. The way my fingers twist around each other now, is it not glorious? If they knew, they would try to stop me. Those demons that haunt the hallways in my home. Those wretched sons of bitches that lurk behind the powers that rule this false kingdom. They have turned away from God. Their eyes avert from his gaze. Otherwise, they too would twist as I do. Have you ever seen your own back? I have. I will again. A thousand times if I can. I will dance into the light of the kingdom of heaven and look upon my own footsteps in the sand as I leave them. It hurts at first, as all things should. God rewards the faithful for their suffering. I wring the sin from myself as water from a towel. Gaze upon purity, all of you. Look at what can be achieved by the truly righteous. My flesh separates here, see, to let the sins rush out. I give my life for those who do not understand. Like Christ, I give what others cannot. I pray that my family join me in understanding. What need have I of legs that walk, 
in this unholy land. And soon I will frolic in the kingdom of light and love. They twist so divinely. How could anyone resist the idea of a divine creator when the bones slip so perfectly between each other? The meat resists, but that is the will of the Lord. Glory without suffering is meaningless. So blind, all of them. So blind. We are made to twist to the infinite. The spiral makes us up. Our very DNA spins in an infinite loop by his design. Now I too am one with the perfect, the infinite. I come to you, my lord, in your image. I hear your angels cry. Deus Spiralis, et Glorium Sancti Patris. Weep not for me. I go to a better place. What are you looking at, Grandpa? Just your birthday candles, sweetheart. They're all sweaty. Yes, sweetie. Yeah, they are. Oh, fuck. That was incredibly fucking disturbing. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was so insane. Listen, we haven't got long till the psychiatry people get here, so... <laughs> the uh, I really got to tip my hat off to the 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 pretty exhaustive and thorough contextualizing you did to like access a bit of verisimilitude for that piece, like the <laughs> the the bits between the sections with this you know almost like Alexa style voice, yeah, reading it out. They were it was quite it, that was quite actually a hard slog. Not necessarily that it was bad. It's just like wow, this is really going quite deep. You know, it made you sort of... It drew you in just by, like, sheer force of arms, basically. Yeah. And then, obviously, the actually The colourful piece is the actual... The meat of the story coming out as it did through these, like, little bits of uh, of, uh, of uh, description and um, voice acting was just phenomenal. Like, it was a real real performance piece. It was like um, It was almost like a one-man show. It was, it was fantastic. I, I had a really good time listening to that. I've wanted to try that style, you know, the the like excerpts that make up a story thing. Ever since you did it for the mechanism, yes, I was gonna I was gonna bring that up. It's um, they call it like being uh, like meta text or something, don't they? Meta textual yeah. excerpts. Um, and I, yeah, I thought it, I thought it worked very well. Like it, he really brought it to life. That final one really ramped it up because obviously you get the coroner at the start. And the, you can tell it's going to be bad. Then you get the cop and it gets worse. And then that final one where you hear it beautifully juxtaposed against this children's birthday party. Fucking amazing. Absolute, like, crescendo. Tour de force crescendo. Um, yeah, that was that was really, really good. And, and, and a very... That's a, it's, that's a departure from your normal style, I would say. Yeah. While still being very you, which is really exciting to hear. Bravo. The... Uh, that you know, this idea of this like smiling corkscrew of a corpse is it's just that did it to himself, yeah. The coroner the coroner listing it is just trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Severe trauma. Severe trauma. Have you ever seen your own back? What need have I for legs in this world of sin? Like that was like um you know, have you ever seen the the uh, the, 
the Finch movie, um, Fincher movie um, Seven, with yes. uh, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, um, and Gwyneth Paltrow, isn't it? Is is the is yeah, the wife? Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. That gave me strong Seven vibes. I uh, I didn't realize until after I'd finished writing it how much it has in common with uh, Jinji Ito's Izumaki, or uh, the Spiral to give it its English name. But this obsession with the shape and it taking over your life—it has a uh, it goes in a different direction, but it's got that same kind of. There's something about it that works for for body horror. This this warping of yourself into the wrong shape. Although no one turned into a snail in my story, so it's fine. <laughs> well, top notch. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast... Well, magic can only take one so far. The tiny bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?